to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture, but today mostly politics, without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Welcome back. Thank you very much. We have a lot to go against the grain with today. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about politics. Uh, We've got, uh, well, let's look at the schedule today. We have um, Mark Sloboda, who is going to... Talk to us about developments in Russia. My John chair collapsed. Popping up and down over here like a jack-in-the-box. Yeah, so that's, excited I feel like about a jack the, in the news. Box. <laughs> there, there was a lot in the news over the weekend about Russia and the United States in that uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, apparently had a conversation with, um, with Russian military officials, with his counterpart in Russia, and that for some reason has outraged a lot of people, mostly Democrats, outraged. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I got a I got a text message from a friend of mine. I mentioned this to you earlier this morning. I got a, a text message from a friend of mine who pointed to this phone conversation and said that Sullivan should be arrested and charged with treason. I mean, that <laughs> is your job as a diplomat. <laughs> and I, I don't, and that's what I that's, said. I, I wrote back and I said, buddy, this isn't treason. It's insane. diplomacy. Yeah. This is what he's paid to do. Yeah. It's his job. Yeah. You know, we used to make fun of the the George W. Bush administration because they worked so hard to not talk to America's enemies. It's like, why have a State Department? I really wonder if I mean, it's also true that Jake Sullivan and we'll talk about this in, in 15 minutes. But, you know, he has been saying all along that. Communication channels are open, yes. but, you know, for at, at the senior level between right. Washington and Russia. I wonder how much of this and maybe it's nothing, right, because maybe this is overstating how big a scandal that was. But how much of this is related to that progressive caucus letter right. where first they said, hey, would you please negotiate? Then there was this wave, small but concentrated wave of backlash, right, from mm-hmm. a, a particularly online cohort Correct. of liberals. Yes. Uh, who said, absolutely not, you know, we demand money without negotiation for Ukraine forever. Um, And then, you know, they got scared, threw their staff under the bus, said, oh, we didn't mean it. This happened in July. Things changed. And then, you know, it came out that former President Barack Obama had been saying, hey, seems like seems like it's pretty important for us to be able to uh, continue talking regardless of what we think of each other. We are too you know, nuclear armed nations. And this is a conflict that could become very dangerous. Mm-hmm. He had been saying that other people piped up to say, hey, yeah, it, actually, this seems pretty reasonable. And now we have what appears to be, you know, leaks coming out going, no, 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 it's fine. We're talking. We're talking. Right. It's fine. And we're even telling Ukraine to talk, not for the purpose of ending the conflict, no. but to appear to be willing to that's want the danger. to end the conflict, which is a, another ridiculous yeah. story. That's so, the yeah. danger right there. I'm curious about that. And we're going to talk to Mark Sloboda about that. Yeah. We're also going to talk to um, to Bruce Fine about what seems to be just an insane case taking place right now in the state of Texas. This This thing started in 2017. It's in the Court of Appeals there, the Federal Court of Appeals. But it's about a, a, a journalist who was arrested for committing journalism. She uh, received information from the Laredo Police Department. She wrote two articles based on the information that she received. And then the Laredo Police Department arrested her because there's a law in Texas that says that you can't write something with the intent of, of 
gaining something of value in return. Mm-hmm. And they're arguing that what she she gained or, or intended to gain was Facebook followers. Mm-hmm. It's preposterous. Now, one judge on the Court of Appeals, James Ho, said, if anything is unconstitutional, this is it. Uh, but the on Bonk, the entire Court of Appeals wants to hear this case, which I think is a dangerous development. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk to Bruce Fine about that. We have the great Dan Lazar uh, joining us at one o'clock. We're going to spend a lot of time. Well, we're going to spend 30 minutes on all of our midterm needs on all of our midterm needs. And I'm going to make a prediction now Uh, tomorrow at this time. We're not going to have any idea who's in control of the Senate. We're just not going to have any idea. And we'll we'll get into that with him. And then we have the always excellent Chris Garafa rounding out the day. Chris is always great on these tech issues that, you know, for me and for many others are so complicated and they're able to put it in plain English. Yeah. I mean, we've got we've got Twitter turmoil. We've got a little catch up on a couple of stories about ByteDance that we weren't able to get to. That's right. Uh, recently. And then also uh, Meta. There's a Meta lot of math layoffs between... might begin might begin as soon as tomorrow. And I'm very yes. curious whether, you know, the, the U.S. economy keeps adding jobs or still adding jobs, but certainly, so I wonder if this is, you know, the tech is, tech sector is a canary in the coal mine, or if this is a, a sort of tech-centric catastrophe that isn't going to be what the rest of the economy looks like, you know, a couple of months from now. And, you know, Meta stock is down like 45 or 46 percent in the last year. All the big tech companies are down dramatically yeah. uh, in the last year. So this uh, yeah, I, this may be a harbinger of something even worse to come. Who knows? Well, we're going to lose the metaverse. Oh, no. Yeah, well, good riddance oh, to it. Oh, it's terrible. Good riddance to and it. Just I read an legs. article this morning that this, there's this new meta game that if you die in the game, you can actually die in real life. I saw that. The they made a headset. Like, they made a VR on. headset that will kill you in the game. I'm sure it's, yeah. it's like an art piece, right? And it's of not going to be, I mean, I can tell you that without having read the story. I'm sure this thing is not being marketed to people. Yeah, no, no. Um, which is sort of an, like you know, a black mirror interesting kind of enough thing. as an art piece, I guess. Yeah. That's fine. And I want to talk about uh, something that the Washington Post wrote about. Uh, oh, are they sabotaging the midterms? They, well, yeah. First, they, <laughs> they have the gall to endorse, like, every Democrat running for every office in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Uh-huh. I, I'm saying that. This yeah. They, they endorsed one Republican and one Independent and, uh-huh. like, 40 Democrats. Typical of the Washington Post. Yeah. But they, they do this thing with— what they call Pinocchios. Yeah. When, when an elected official gives a speech and the speech contains a lie, you get a Pinocchio yeah. from one to five Pinocchios, depending on how big the lie is. Yeah. And depending on, sorry, depending on Glenn Kessler's personal politics. I'm glad you said that. Because he's one who's always after Bernie Sanders. I'm glad you said like, that. Well, your methodology. Yeah. Uh, I really don't like him. shows 53% of them. So, uh, you know. Yeah. It was absolute. It, it, it's garbage. He once called me a traitor. So I'm down on Glenn me Kessler. Me too. Yeah. I think he's... A dummy. Well, Glenn Kessler uh, came up with this thing called bottomless Pinocchios. Mm -hmm. And that is when it's a series of lies, but the lies are told over and over and over again so many times that that they transform into propaganda. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's kind of a big deal that he gave Joe Biden a bottomless uh, Pinocchio over the weekend. We're going to get into that. Um, But I will say he gave Donald Trump 56 bottomless Pinocchios when Trump was in office. Mm -hmm. So Biden received his bottomless Pinocchio for saying over the weekend for the 20th 
and 21st times that he has traveled with Chinese President Xi Jinping 17,000 miles or 18,000 miles, depending on the telling, because he changes the number, more than any other world leader. But this wasn't the only reason that Biden received the bottomless Pinocchio. He also repeated yet again that gas is on average $3.39 a gallon, down from $5 a gallon when he took office. That's just, That's just any, patently false. Anyone can remember that is not anyone. true. Yeah. Gas was actually two forty eight a gallon on the day that Biden uh, took office. And today gas is three seventy six a gallon on average, not three thirty nine. Biden also said this last week at a political forum. Listen to this great quote. You are probably aware that I just signed a law that is being challenged by my Republican colleagues. What we've provided for is if you went to school, if you qualified for a Pell Grant, you qualify for $20,000 in debt forgiveness. Secondly, if you don't have one of those loans, you just get $10,000 written off. It's passed. Yeah. I got it passed by a vote or two. That's not. That's just none of that's not, true. Not what happened at none all. None of it's true. Yeah. There was never a vote in Congress, let alone two votes in Congress. Biden never even sent the idea to Congress. He simply signed an executive order. Yeah. And that's what the Republicans were jumping up and down about. Yeah. Nobody has ventured to guess as to why he made this story up or he may have just been confused. I mean, some of this is some of these are, you know, weird things that are stuck in Joe Biden's brain. You have that thing about Nelson Mandela visiting Mandela in prison or something. Right. Didn't happen. And being um, arrested in yes, South Africa. Yeah, that's what it was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what the 17,000 miles is. This other thing is him just misremembering mm -hmm. how a recent thing that he did came to pass. Right. That's a little I mean, I think like. First, you know, some people might not care whether it was through executive order or through a vote that this that this occurred. But the process is very important for someone like Joe Biden. Right. You would have been there would have been talks for weeks and weeks. How many, how are we going to fulfill right. this campaign pro promise? Can we do it through Congress? Can we you know, what can we get into this bill? What can't we? OK, he signed he signed the order himself, you know. Right. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. That's not uh, that's not too cool. And the other the gas price is just, you know, it's like. What that's, are you talking about? That, I mean, that's just him politicking, right? You know, and one thing that I left out of this is that he's been bragging for the last two weeks that senior citizens are going to get the biggest cost of living increase in whatever, 35 years. Well, yeah, it's because inflation's out of control. And the law says that the Social Security cost of living increase is tied to the rate of inflation. Yeah. So that's not a brag. Yeah. No, yeah, don't do really, that. <laughs> that's whatever is the opposite of a humble brag. That's uh, <laughs> the inversion of that. I'm not sure what the word is for it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention also, uh, you know, COP27 is is beginning in yes. Egypt. Uh, people are arriving. If you want to, you can go look on, you know, different air tracker, flight tracker websites and mm -hmm. see how many private jets are flying oh, yeah. to Egypt to talk about solutions for climate change. All those um, private jets. But one interesting thing that happened was uh, Emmanuel Macron meeting with uh, Nicolas Maduro, yeah, who's a Macron president deal. of France, Maduro president of uh, Venezuela on the sidelines and having a conversation that la you know, lasted for a few minutes. You mm -hmm. can, there's uh, videos of, of this conversation where they didn't say anything particularly um, substantive. But, you know, Macron says, how, how are things going? Maduro says, yeah, everything's going great. You're going to have to come visit. Uh, but Macron says, you know, 
we we should talk. France has to be a positive actor in the region. We should we should get together and talk more about, yeah. uh, you know, talk about starting starting bilateral work useful for the country and the region. You know, all smiles between the two of them. And so, you know, one. I think that's dramatic. Yeah. One uh, wither Juan Guaido. I mean, we mm-hmm. all know where God knows where he is. Yeah. Sitting in a sitting in an empty Zoom meeting yeah, somewhere right. waiting for somebody to come on he and salute him. He might be here. He's enrolled in graduate school at George Washington University. Mm-hmm. For all we know, he could be sitting here in Washington. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, again, uh, you know, shouldn't escape our notice that uh, Macron and uh is the president of France and France is part of a continent that might be suffering greatly due to a dearth of energy Indeed. supplies. And as we know, Venezuela is sitting on the most oil in the world. That's right. And uh, yeah, so it seems like this thaw, thaw with Venezuela proceeding apace and all smiles in, in that meeting. Yeah, so when right. we're going to hear more about negotiations between the United States and Venezuela, we'll see. But I expect it to be, you know, sooner rather than later. I think you're right. Man, I had this big thing. I just want to, sometime later this week, I hope we get to talk about Ticketmaster. Yeah. There's been a lot of- I saw uh, this. There's been a bunch of stories about Ticketmaster because, I think because there have been a couple high profile um, concert series Mm -hmm. announced, Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift. Right. I guess Bruce Springsteen was a little while back. And people going- Paul McCartney. In what the hell? Last year. Why are these tickets so expensive? Seriously. And realizing once again, it's because the, the- the, there is a monopoly on issuing tickets in the United States. Ticketmaster and Live Nation, which are the same company, um, can now charge tickets. Sorry, the cost of a ticket can be as much as a 78 percent fees. Yeah. So like 78%. you're paying more, you're paying more than the cost of your ticket in their in their quote unquote processing fees. Uh, which, of course, doesn't make any sense. There's no way around it. They also introduced and we missed this when they introduced um, dynamic pricing. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So now people were people were going online and seeing this is, you know, this is reported a, a couple of months ago, I think. But, you know, they remain a monopoly. And so I think we should still be talking about yeah. it. Um, yeah. It, as demand would surge, prices would increase. Unbelievable. And you'd have to just wait around and wait for demand to die down and then see if there were prices. I mean, it just seems like it's just disgusting, right? I mean, it just is grotesque. Uh, the artist, Ticketmaster claims they do this because the artists want them to do that. I don't really believe that. Oh, no. There have been the groups like, for example, U2 that have opted mm-hmm. out. And Bob Dylan mm-hmm. is another one mm-hmm. that have opted out of, of selling tickets through Ticketmaster. But it's very hard to do. They very also have hard. a corner on the on the resale market. Yes. And so, again, and again, it just goes to show I mean, the, the uh, point of this is to say there, there is no, there is no antitrust action in the United States anymore, right? No. There is no like serious antitrust action. The last big thing I can remember hearing about it was Bill Barr trying to go after the marijuana industry, you know, telling, telling the antitrust division to focus their attention there. Like there is, you know, look at how monopolized and uh, hyper concentrated all of our meat processing systems are, right? So the idea again, it look just at book publishing. Yeah, well, um, you know, they did just prevent that House, big merger. I yeah. Think. yeah, Random House had merged with Penguin mm-hmm. and all of their uh, smaller imprints, right? There are dozens of imprints. And then now it's called Penguin Random House, I think. Now they were trying to buy Simon & Schuster. Yeah, yeah. And finally, the, the regulators said, no, 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 yeah. you can't do that. Came in to block that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's uh, obvious candidates. 
for being broken up. Yeah. And it, Most you know, it doesn't matter because it's making powerful people a lot of money. And the only thing it does is inconvenience the rest of us poor. That's so. right. Or inconvenience or is too light. C- cuts us off from, yes. you know, uh, cuts us off from entertainment, cuts us off from culture, cuts us off from experiences that are in person and not online. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, you know, yes, worth getting the right. government involved in. I know we have our guests, but I want to say one thing. I, I meant to say it last week, just as an aside, mm-hmm. Taylor Swift. I, I, I'm not a huge Taylor Swift fan. I, I really don't know much about Taylor Swift. Although I did see her in a restaurant with her parents. Really? Yeah. Oh. In West Hollywood having lunch. Absolutely lovely and very uh, friendly to the help. Anyway, for the first time in the history of music, last week in the top 10, Taylor Swift had all 10 yeah. songs in yeah. the top 10. Never yeah. been done before. Absolutely incredible feat. I can't even imagine it. I will say I enjoy Taylor Swift's pop songs. I think she is a good writer of pop mm-hmm. music. I enjoy yeah. it. I don't need it's to go see her in concert, but, you right. know. Right. She's start. got a real gift. Yeah. She's fun. She's I mean, fun the, the Beatles never did this. Mm. The Bee Gees never did it mm. in the 70s. Mm. This is an incredible feat. Yeah. All 10 of the top 10 songs yeah. at the same time. Good job, Tay-Tay. Wow. <laughs> I think impressed. we can skip this break and go straight from Taylor Swift to high-level negotiations over a possible nuclear escalation. That's an easy transition. While your heads are spinning, I will introduce the man who's going to bridge this gap with us. We're joined by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, how you doing? Uh, Hey, Michelle, John, thanks for having me. Uh, It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits, and I I simply can't top... Uh, what's her name? Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift. Yeah, I, I don't know who she is, but um, obviously I can't top her. So let's just let's just call it there. That's just OK. Well, the show's over, guys. None on. of us have any songs in the top 10. No. We hate, we, you know, the the, the, the the curtain's been pulled back. None of us are pop superstars. Now, you know, the truth. Um, Mark, we got a bunch. Uh, we've got Russian interference. We've got who is negotiating with who. I want to ask you a little bit about. Uh, you know, how much business U.S. banks are actually doing with Russia. And uh, if we have time, get to this story about um, Israel, uh, Israel, Italy and a standoff with some migrant boats. But I want to start off with, uh, I think, a, a little bit of comedy which is this big Russian interference story. Uh, we had a bunch of Western outlets saying, oh, my, OMG, Russia has admitted it. Uh, Evgeny uh, Prigozhin, who's consistently described as an oligarch and a Putin ally, he was apparently asked about a reported new election interference effort by Russia and said, I will answer you very subtly, very delicately, and I apologize. I will allow a certain ambiguity. Gentlemen, we interfered, we interfere, and we will interfere. Carefully, precisely, surgically, and in our own way, as we know how, during our pinpoint operations, we will remove both kidneys and the liver at once. (laughs) And this is being taken as a sincere admission uh, that Russia is interfering once again in our elections. To me, it is actually unclear even how this question was posed. Um, So what, what is this all about? Yeah, um, it, it's amazing what they choose to quote out of that and the way that they're running this story. Mm-hmm. And they seem to miss, you know, further down because this was on the press service of his company, Concord. Uh, and um, the uh, a little bit further down is Concord's recommendation to watch 16, a 2021 Russian comedy based on uh, uh, the American conspiracy theories about Russian meddling mm-hmm. in American elections. So 
obviously they chose to 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 run with the precaution admitted that that Russia interfered rather than the fact that he was obviously being sarcastic and trolling them as as he often does and i was absolutely amazed so i opened up a a us media uh story uh about this um and um it was uh, the washington or sorry newsweek and the very last sentence in the article takes everything seriously all the way through it mentions his company Concord, and it mentions the supposed internet research agency, uh, which the Mueller uh, probes charged um, uh, Concord, his company, of owning. And uh, Concord took that to court, (laughs) saying that not only don't we own this, but this doesn't even exist, and the U.S. government dropped the case. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> because they have not. It's all it's all fake news. It's all you know. It's all uh, part of the the, the Mel McCarthyite scare. But only in the very last sentence of this Newsweek article does it say, "Russian state-run media outlets." Uh, okay, I guess it does, uh, including Ria Novosti news agency, said on Monday that Prigozhin made the remarks, "quote ironically," unquote. Yes. I mean, there's no need for the scare quotes there. I mean, he did say it ironically. It's not our fault that you don't get sarcasm in Russian. But, I mean, you could have checked up 16 and discovered that it was a comedy of Russians making fun of you for the conspiracy theories in the U.S. about Russia somehow uh, putting uh, uh, Donald Trump, of all people, in the White House, uh, rather than say they used Americans. to do this with Trump all the time, too. Trump would say something like, well, yeah. obviously, as you can see, I'm a young and virile man. And there would be all these headlines about like Donald Touch out uh, Trump out of touch with reality. And you're like, no, it was a joke, right? Not everything he says is a joke, but sometimes it is. <laughs> you have to be able to understand this. Um, the, the government is pushing this Russian meddling th- nonsense again. Evidently, because the Democrats are are, are uh, supposedly going to do bad, as often happens in midterm elections, the other side often sees a surge. But they're they're going to be blaming Russia for this again, evidently, and probably Venezuela and Iran and China and everyone else, other than Americans. Um, and uh, it seems that the media, I don't know, do they have a quota? Of of how many stories they have to write about Russian meddling or something is that is that the way the editors do it? At, at, Probably. <laughs> and and I guess this seemed to fit the bill, so they 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 wrote around reality and you know or, or or pretended they didn't understand. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they're that bad. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a it's a combination, right? I think some of them are that bad, and some of them are just hacks. You know, they know that that'll get the attention. Who cares if it? You know, the meaning. Yeah, who cares Being if the so bad at hacks is not mutually is not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I have to say. Let me ask you also. You know, kind of on the topic of intent, uh, these stories about how and why the U.S., Ukraine, and Russia may or may not be negotiating. We we had this piece in the Washington Post over the weekend telling us. The U.S. has privately asked Ukraine to show that it is open to negotiating with Russia. And the show here is doing a lot of work because the subhead makes it clear 
The encouragement is aimed not at pushing Ukraine to the negotiating table, but ensuring it maintains a moral high ground in the eyes of its international backers. Why run this story, Mark? I mean, I can see how if this was leaked by someone who was concerned, you know, concerned about the possibility of this conflict escalating and wanting people to understand what's happening behind the scenes. But that's not how the story is written. So, yeah. What this, this is not a leak. This is the Biden administration telling the Washington Post what to write and the Washington Post writing it. This is what they want to be known. I, for once, I don't think we need to read in between the lines. I think we can take them exactly. They are that tone deaf and that hubris that they can talk about manipulating primarily the people of Europe. That's what they're doing here, right? Because they're saying maintain them in the eyes of its international backers. Yeah. They're talking about growing sentiment in Europe, uh, you know, that the the, the uh, political elite in, in the EU states are coming to the U.S. and saying, uh, hey, our, our plebes are revolting in the streets. Uh, energy bills are 800 percent. Inflation is rising. Can you toss us a bone? And the U.S. is like, yeah, whatever. Here's a bone. Yeah. You know. And, and and as Newland was tossing them the bone, she's like, "After you, right? <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's this. It's hubris. It's tone deafness, and they think that this does it. I mean, as they admit that they are in control of Ukraine, right? Yeah. And, and 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 that you know that they can that transparently, like like uh, the European Union people have an inability to read." the sub headlines of the Washington Post or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absurd. Yeah. It's just bizarre, but I don't think we need to look anything further past this unless there is some, you know, 10 D chess that I can't understand with this. What about also these reports now that it is in fact, us national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who has been engaged in talks with his counterpart in Russia and a senior foreign policy advisor to Vladimir Putin. Uh, White House has not confirmed this from what I have seen, but, you know, other papers are saying their sources have confirmed the original Wall Street Journal reports. And it is worth noting that Sullivan himself has said repeatedly, we have channels to negotiate with Russia at senior levels. Uh, These negotiations, at least according to what we can read about them, are not about ending the conflict there about preventing the risk of escalation and and uh, maintaining, you know, nuclear safety. Uh, what do you think? Do you think this is actually happening? Do you think this is even newsworthy, considering Sullivan himself has said these channels are open? How should we take these reports? Yeah, I, I think that this is I think we should take this report in The Wall Street Journal as another case, except this is Jake Sullivan's office calling the Wall Street Journal and saying, write a puff piece about how Jake Sullivan is having confidential discussions while we're with Russia, yeah. while no one else in the media administration will, and tell him how great he is for it. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 what I read into it. Um, because this is obviously, I mean, even the, you know, the wording was obviously intended to puff up Jake Sullivan as some type of statesman, as the national security advisor. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's hardly a bad thing that at least one person in the Biden administration is talking to his counterpart in Russia with the aim of averting nuclear war. I mean, that that should be, I guess, somewhat reassuring, maybe. 
um, if you have if you've been paying any attention to what's going on. But I also can't help but notice that Jake Sullivan also popped in personally to Kiev, and within 24 hours of him popping into Kiev. The Kiev regime uh, finally started to lurch towards their uh, uh, much uh, ballyhooed Big Herson offensive, the 60,000 troops that they've gathered. And they're now all lurching towards the front line, even the rear echelons. All the artillery is, is leaving its ports. It's all coming. So expect the uh, what might end up being the biggest battle of the conflict so far, probably within the next 72 hours. Wow. Wow. And that's soon. I'm sorry. I don't see it as a coincidence that Jake Sullivan was just there. No. He delivered the marching orders or the green light or whatever way you want to look like. Do you think any of this also has anything to do with the hoopla over that letter by the Progressive Caucus? I mean, again, this was a, the Progressive Caucus of the U.S. Congress, which is pretty small. Uh, or of the the U.S. House, which is pretty small. Uh, the backlash over this letter was, you know, I think a, a very online segment of, uh, you know, particular brand of liberal. So I don't, you know, I think it's very possible to live in this media bubble and overstate how impactful that was. But yeah. it did seem yeah, like... Yeah, I, I think... It did yeah, seem like yeah, there was that backlash and then that maybe there has been some actually scrambling to go, no, 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 we, we are negotiating a little bit. We're all, we're talking within some very strict boundaries. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't actually see a direct connection there. Mm -hmm. I think it's more to do with the, the international scene than a few tepid progressives raising their head for five minutes until Nancy Pelosi in full-on dominatrix gear cracks the whip and says, get back in line, back in the manacles. <laughs> Okay. I, I I don't place it. No, there I, is a tendency in an American politics to imagine the you know uh, importance of American politics often over international events, and it can be overstated. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Um, what about this uh, report in Bloomberg that the Biden administration has been quietly asking huge U.S. banks like J.P. Morgan and Citigroup? to, in fact, uh, continue their cooperation with certain strategic Russian companies or to not refuse that cooperation. Uh, the Biden administration has has said all along that it doesn't want to freeze out non-sanctioned sectors of the Russian economy. You can, you know, believe that or not. But, you know, it, it is also stated that the purpose of this is about shielding the global economy from more pain. Uh, the U.S. <laughs> or the White House was even pushing a bank to keep working with a Russian entity that was sanctioned by the EU, which really yeah. sounds like cheating. Uh, it sounds to me like this is sanctions blowback that the U.S. didn't anticipate. Uh, how do you see this? Yeah, um, actually, I see this as helping protect the EU, mm. <laughs> as as in insane as that is, considering that the EU has sanctioned some of them. You take a look exactly at this. It's Gazprom, right? And European uh, countries are still buying, you know, uh, uh, Russian gas, uh, a, a lot of EU countries, maybe not at the volumes as before, having 
lost Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 and having the the um, uh, the uh, Druzhba pipeline shut down but Perkstream is Perkstream is still delivering at least a third of the gas and and the EU definitely needs that as a lifeline uh, so they 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 don't want to close that door on their allies who desperately need at least that trickle of gas to get through the winter. The other thing is uh, fertilizer projects, uh, uh, Ukrokali and Fazagro, and as part of the grain deal, that is what Russia's conditions were, is that uh, sanctions need to be removed so that Russia can get its fertilizer to the African countries that the West seems to be concerned about. So this is very targeted. And I'm not so sure as much about it. And actually, it's it's actually the, the EU has, who has been importing that fertilizer uh, again. Uh, so I see a, a global economic catastrophe trying to soften the blow a little bit for our EU vassals. That's the way I read it. And this is a signal to, you know, American business. These are the channels we want you to work in. These are safe for now. I wonder if it's I don't know if we talked about this last week. The Times did a breakdown of uh, Russian trade with the rest of the world, showing where it had grown and where it had shrunk. And I just wonder, how, you know, how considering we're getting these reports of sort of, uh, uh, you know, private conversations about the the White House directly telling banks, no, 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 go for it. This is OK. How separated our are our economies right now? Right. Do you, are, are they actually more intertwined than you think the U.S. public recognizes or ha- have these sanctions, you know, uh, divorced us pretty completely? Um, no, it's it not as um, as completely as a lot of people uh, might uh, think. Um, you know, uh, actually, um, the trade, there was a significant trade imbalance before this all began. I mean, even if you go, you know, back a few years, um, to, uh, in Russia's favor, right? The, the U S, uh, imported a lot more from Russia, uh, than, than Russia imported, uh, from the United States. Um, and, a big part of that, of course, is oil um, and uh, metals and so forth. And actually, uh, it's interesting. The import of certain metals has actually increased mm-hmm. um, while the the uh, import of di- at least directly of oil has been completely dropped off. But meanwhile, in Europe, as a lot of countries are you know, promising that they'll stop Russian oil, Russian gas, very quietly, they're actually in, hugely increasing for the last few months their purchases uh, from Russia. Uh, presumably, in the case of of oil, that's before the December uh, headlines uh, hit in. But very quietly, if you read in detail in the Western press, there's a lot of acknowledgement that. The EU is going to keep importing Russian energy. They're just going to do it through middlemen where, where uh, you know, it's sent, sent to India and then India just passes it on to the U.S. with maybe or to the EU with a few other uh, things added in a few other countries oil added into it. And, and, and presto, it's so, so uh, no longer Russian oil. But the, the fact is, there's only so much oil on the market. It's finite. Um, and. You 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 have to 
to take it. it the only difference is now is that European uh, taxpayers will and consumers will be paying a big markup for it. <laughs> for yeah. having to deal with a middleman and the political value of saying we're not buying Russian oil. And, you know, I, I, India is making a big profit off of it and not just India. Saudi Arabia is doing the same thing to the U.S. They're buying large quantities of Russian oil, uh, refined oil that they use domestically and then just sell more of their own oil at a specific markup to the U.S. added on top. Yeah. So. It's it's a finite uh, uh, commodity that everyone needs. Uh, you know the delusion, uh, the the uh, sleight of hand of saying that that we can do without it and we don't need Russian oil. You're still paying for it. You're just paying more. Great. <laughs> uh, yep. Pretty simple there. I want to ask you finally uh, about what's going on in Italy, where there is a standoff with a couple of boatloads of migrants. Uh, who were rescued at sea by a couple of charity ships and brought to the port of Catania. Uh, There is apparently a crisis involving four boats. Two of them have not been um, assigned a port. Two have been able to dock at Catania. And women, children, and sick men were allowed to disembark, but adult men were told to stay on board, and their captains were ordered to take them back to international waters. Their uh, lawyers are drafting asylum applications for them. Uh, But Italy is saying, look, these people are breaking immigration law. We are here to help women and children and, uh, you know, people in dire need. But we are not obligated to take healthy adults. They're also saying these rescue boats are German flagged. These rescue boats are Norway flagged. Take these migrants to your countries. Um, But what the rescue boats do that sort of hang out off the in the waters off of Libya, uh, they take migrants they find in distress to the nearest port. And a lot of times that is Italy. Uh, the new government of Italy for sure campaigned on taking a harder line on migration. And so I wonder what, you know, who is going to blink in this case and, and what is going to start happening? Because, you know, people are still coming, right? People are trying to cross that that sea. The conditions are very difficult. Boats continue to look for these migrants and rescue them. And I wonder if they're just going to have to start taking them elsewhere. No, I, I think you'll just see more people drowning <sighs> and, and dying at, at, at sea. I mean, the, the Italians don't want these these uh, migrants right uh, in in their country. Uh, they elected a populist right-wing government, and it's returning to policies that were already in place with previous right-wing administrations in Italy. And, I mean, to their credit, I mean, you are not supposed to sort out uh, migrants and saying that these these yeah. are legitimate, these are not. There are international laws, but let's be let's be frank. I mean, uh, from the conditions. On U.S. borders of of the way that Biden has been imprisoning um, uh, uh, migrants in the exact same way that Donald Trump was. Every country does this, Mm. right? Every country, whatever the international human rights law, uh, there are very few uh, countries that that actually follow this. And a lot of this is simply due to the fact of Libya. This is blowback. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember before they 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 uh, regime changed Libya and uh, had um, uh, Gaddafi brutally murdered um, that he said that if you remove my government, you're going to have a flood of migrants that you're going to have to deal with. Uh, I don't think you want that. And turns out they don't. I mean, 
lo and behold, you know, the pipeline is open. And I mean, you are not going to have a stop in the flow of um, Africans uh, and and from other. I mean, there there's a flow there because there's an easy short passage. Yeah. But there's people on these ships coming from Bangladesh, coming from all over the world. They're looking for economic opportunity and the knowledge that the EU has rules that that uh, you know not only um, are these migrants uh, supposed to be welcome but they're supposed to be financially supported as well until the domestic laws change or until the rules of the EU change you will consider continue to see elected EU uh, state governments basically defying the spirit of the technocratic rule from Brussels and saying, no, you don't get to decide this and we don't want these migrants in our country. I mean, it does seem like in the case of Germany, you know, Germany has, you know, Germany took in what, a million Syrian migrants. Yes. Between. Germany, so I yes. don't think I think Germany has uh, to some degree attempted to walk the walk. But like I do, you know, I have some sympathy with the countries who happen to be the nearest ports especially Italy, which is not in Greece. a great financial situation. Greece, Greece as well, saying, Greece, you know, well, yeah. Uh, even a worse it's financial situation. Yeah, saying, yeah. you know, w- well, if you know, what if you take a longer sailing route and bring these people to these wealthier countries yeah. that are not having such a hard time? And it seems like what always happens is, no, Italy and it's Greece get hard. vilified, you know, to some degree, fairly, but not entirely. Is, and, uh, they, I, yeah. As long as you have a global north and a global south, people will continue to try to find the economic opportunity of what they perceive. Um, and perception is the key word there yeah. to be a better life for them. Um, and people will continue to die uh, to to risk that. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Sloboda, always great to talk to you. That was our international affairs and security analyst. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to talk about some wild court cases in the U.S. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be back in a sec. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. In 2017, police in Laredo, Texas, jailed journalist Priscilla Villarreal. Her crime was publishing two articles critical of the police based on information that was not available to the public. That's called journalism in most places. But it was the Laredo police who gave her the information in the first place. In Texas, it is, quote, illegal to solicit non-public information from government officials if the requester has an intent to obtain a benefit, unquote. The cops allege that the benefit that Villarreal was attempting to secure was an increase in the number of Facebook followers that she had. Villarreal sued the police in federal district court. That court ruled in favor of the police, citing qualified immunity and saying that there was no precedent get this, saying that jailing somebody for committing journalism was unconstitutional. Wow. Crazy, right? The Federal Court of Appeals then took up the case with one judge saying, quote, if this isn't unconstitutional, I don't know what is, unquote. But then the entire Court of Appeals, on bunk, 
said that it would look at the issue. It has yet to make a decision, so we don't yet know if journalism is now officially illegal in the state of Texas. In other news, the Republican Party has filed a lawsuit in Pennsylvania asking that thousands of ballots, almost all of which are from Democratic precincts, be invalidated because they either lack a date on the envelope or they were sent in unsigned. Democrats have filed a countersuit, and in the meantime, they have asked people whose ballots have been pulled to go to the Election Commission office and vote again. Presumably, this is the first of what will be many lawsuits coming out of today's election. We are joined by Bruce Fine. He is a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. Welcome back, Bruce. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Bruce, let's talk about this Texas case. The facts seem pretty straightforward. A journalist was arrested for writing these articles. As the Circuit Court of Appeals Judge uh, James Ho said, if this isn't unconstitutional, I don't know what is. So what then is the controversy? Why do you think the entire Court of Appeals wants to hear this case? Well, the issue is created by the so-called doctrine of qualified immunity by the United States Supreme Court. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, your listeners need to understand, you know, terminology here that could be confusing, and I apologize if it, it does become confusing. Um, the court does not, in this context, rule whether or not uh, the arrest was constitutional or not. I think it was assumed it was unconstitutional. Uh, indeed, virtually all of Watergate, deep throat, you know, <laughs> Carl Bernstein, Entire water disclosures would have been violation of Texas law, which would be an absurdity. Um, the Pentagon Papers, uh, similar. Uh, so it, it, the question wasn't whether this was unconstitutional. It's whether the victim of the violation has a right to damages. And this is where the problem becomes very confusing. The United States Supreme Court says you get damages only if the violation established clear and unambiguous precedent of the U.S. Supreme Court. So if they haven't ruled on exactly the same fact, you know, it's almost impossible to get damages. Well, I mean, this kind of law that Texas has is so unusual and rare and outrageous that obviously the Supreme Court would never have a prior case because it's so ridiculously bad. You know, that is, other decisions by lower courts would rule it unconstitutional. But it has to be a violation of a U.S. Supreme Court precedent, not a precedent of another federal court. Uh, the Court of Appeals here on Bonk, I think, is granted a rehearing because they disagree with a, a panel decision, uh, the dissent of, of, of Jim Ho, saying, wait a minute, you know, if this isn't a clear violation of Supreme Court precedent, I don't know what is. You know, you could cite the New York Times, the Pentagon Papers cases, a whole slew of other cases uh, where the Supreme Court says you cannot punish, you know, publication of information uh, that has been obtained uh, from government, uh, even if the government acted wrongfully. Uh, and and I, I happen to know uh, Jim Ho uh, as a professional colleague years ago. He was uh, staff chief of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh-huh. Nine, he was then senator. And I can guarantee you, Jim Ho is no liberal. <laughs> he writes an opinion like this that shows you how wacko the other two judges were in kind to read this qualified immunity to cover everything under the sun. It would be like saying that if you have a Supreme Court precedent um, that decides that uh, breaking into a home uh, with a bomb without uh, a warrant is is unconstitutional, but you break into a 
uh, a home with artillery, that's not the precedent wasn't exactly on point because a bomb isn't the same as artillery. <laughs> so it is a it's a it's a defense that has been concocted and I think abused. Uh, in fact, I'm working on drafting legislation right now that would end qualified abuse. Ah, well, that actually what? is my second question. This this issue of qualified immunity, Doctrine. It, it, it qualified immunity makes it virtually impossible to sue the police, even when they commit gross violations of the Constitution. You have taken on qualified immunity in the federal court system. How difficult is it to do this? And is it only legislation? that can change this policy since it was enacted by Congress in the first place? No, no. Congress did not enact the qualified immunity oh. and was created by the judges. It's not created by Congress. Oh, I'm wrong. Uh, and so this is where you might call an activist court. Uh, and so um, it's clearly within congressional authority to abolish the doctrine, which is, in my judgment, what ought to be done. Think of this. Um, it said that if you abolish qualified immunity, then police would be reluctant to skate close to the line of a violation of your right. And that's a bad thing. <laughs> Wait a minute. As far as I'm concerned, I'd rather have a comfort level. I'd rather have a chilling effect on exercising their maximum power. It means more liberty. Um, and in my judgment, there was never a showing you know, prior to qualified immunity. that if you abolished it, somehow the crime rate would, would skyrocket and police would become totally enfeebled. Uh, that is, a, in my judgment, clearly a wrong uh, uh, deduction of how police would behave. And moreover, you have to remember this, that there are all sorts of insurance companies that write liability policies sure. for tort feasors or torts like this. So if the government wants to protect their police officers uh, from uh, bankrupting liability, buy them insurance as part of the perquisites of the office. But why are you having your citizens have to pay the price of constitutional wrongdoing? That should be paid. That price should be paid by the government, not the victim. Victim, indeed. Qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials performing discretionary functions immunity from these civil lawsuits, unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. But it seems that there are almost no such suits able to go forward in the federal courts because of qualified immunity. They have to be rights that have been declared by the United States Supreme Court in a precedent. Now, obviously, Good grief. situation where the rights are so obvious that the Supreme Court has decided not to review the claims. The lower courts got it right. But until the Supreme Court speaks, you know, it's, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for the police, which is ridiculous, especially when you remember that the whole reason why we have a written constitution is because we believe the legislative branch is an untrustworthy steward of our liberty, that our liberties do not depend upon the outcome of elections. So how can you then entrust, you know, to uh, not have the judicial branch uh, deciding the remedies because they don't have uh, the distrust of protecting uh, minority rights that was assigned to the legislative branch by the drafters of the Constitution? Right. Bruce, um... Is you're well you're well tuned into Congress. Is there any move afoot among Republicans or even among Democrats to address this issue? I know that there are senators like uh, Rand Paul, for example, or Mike Lee from Utah, Congressman uh, uh, Massey of Kentucky, and it seems like this is right up their alley. Are they addressing this or trying to address it? 
Uh, there was a little bit of movement after the George Floyd um, uh, debacle, if you will, police abuse. Uh, but to be candid, you know, the, the, the members up there frightened. Uh, crime is, a, is an issue. And so if there's one uh, uh, criminal who's in, uh, in, in, committed dastardly deeds, and of course you get them, the Nicholas Cruises or whatever, it's unfortunate, uh, these mass murders, and then they're very undiscriminating and say, okay, well, they are anti-police or something like that, defund the police. So they run away from it. You know, they're un- unwilling to use a scalpel here. And, and part of it is because they're intellectual lazy. They don't know how to draw lines. They don't know how to make the arguments. They don't even know the decisions that I'm referring to. And so they just sit there like, uh, you know, potted plants and do nothing. Uh, it's really quite disgraceful in my mind. Uh, and unfortunately, it's not just limited to qualified immunity across the board. Uh, Congress, and that's why when we talk about today, well, there's going to be huge change, a red wave, maybe not a blue wave, what knows. The fact is, the more things change, the more they stay the same in Congress. It does not want to do anything. It wants to posture. It wants to make sure problems never go solved so they can keep their base hot and supplying them with donations and out to vote. Uh, and that's why we're in a huge mess. The politicians are not in the business of acting in the public good. They're in the business of staying in power and keeping things agitated and not solving anything so that they can go get campaign contributions. That is the sorry state of American democracy today. And it's funny, you know, beginning as early as as the uh, well, you could go back to the to the Republican convention of 1976 or even the election of 1964, where Barry Goldwater was the uh, Republican nominee versus Lyndon Johnson to see the the, the beginnings of this and the, the effect of outside pressure groups. You know, the John Birch Society, for example, um, making some of these uh, these political points, scoring political points in the Republican Party. Um, it got bad in 76 when Ronald Reagan. Reagan announced he was running against an incumbent president in Gerald Ford. Um, in 80, it was it was Ted Kennedy challenging uh, Jimmy Carter on the left. And it got worse and worse until 1994. We got Newt Gingrich and the whole game changed. And it's just been downhill from there. Bruce, the, the city of... He, he, he lobotomized Congress, cut off. He did. Maybe. And he transferred all the power to the leadership so the plebeians have no authority. And that's the key right there. Yeah. That's the key right there. Once upon a time, as recently as 1994, the Rules Committee was was all powerful in the House of Representatives. If you wanted legislation to make it to the floor of the House, it had to get through subcommittee and committee and then make it through the Rules Committee. Well, now the Rules Committee is a figurehead uh, organization. Everything has to go through the office of the Speaker. Newt Gingrich did that, but every subsequent Speaker kept that policy, including Nancy Pelosi. And that's why we have these imperial Speakers now. And if you're just Joe Blow, you know, backbencher of either party, you're not going to get any legislation passed into law unless the speaker says you can. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's however, I think the problem is even a little more pervasive than you've described. And I wouldn't disagree with anything you've said, John. But the fact is, we keep attracting people running for office who are totally ill-equipped even to teach a high school civics class. Amen. They don't know anything. They know no principles. They go up there. I'm stunned. You know, they don't know that you talk to them about, well, what happened at uh, uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki? What was the Korean War about? Uh, the, the second uh, infamous non-existent torpedo attack uh, on the Turner Joy and the Vietnam, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, what's water? They don't know anything. And so we get members up there who are sociopaths that they're only to crave publicity and attention. They're narcissists. 
uh, and they don't leave any attention for their the moral depravity of their souls. And it gets worse and worse each year. Look at the quality of the person who's running for office. I've always said that unless we have an institution that trains candidates of whatever political affiliation or being independent, so that they know what their rights and obligations are, not only the ones that are expressed in the Constitution, but the unwritten duty in a democracy, if you are representing um, you know, the people not only of, of, of your district, but of the United States as well. Until you have that, it's going to keep going downhill. And we just have, it's one branch government. The president talks a little bit with the Speaker of the House and the majority leader of the Senate. And otherwise, we're just spectators. That's right. Bruce, uh, one last question. The city of Philadelphia announced this morning that it would delay the counting of thousands of paper ballots because of a lawsuit alleging that it is open to double counting. The city council noted that there has been no double counting or double voting in any of the past three elections. And a Pennsylvania common police court judge ruled last week that the vote count could indeed go forward. But out of, of an abundance of caution, et cetera, et cetera. They decided not to uh, count these votes. Is this what we have to look forward to? Lawsuit after lawsuit that's going to delay actual vote counting? Is this the future of our elections? Well, I mean, remember, Philadelphia is one city and the United States is a pretty uh, large uh, territory. So there are many, many uh, other jurisdictions. But think of the comparison, however. You know, it's one thing to bring a lawsuit, you know. It's another thing to use weapons uh, and kill police officers and, 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 and use force and violence and hope to kill Nancy Pelosi and hang Mike Pence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my view is, okay, apply the regular standards that you get sanctions if you bring frivolous lawsuits, but go ahead, as long as you're within the rules of the game. You have a right to bring lawsuits, not frivolous ones, because then you get sanctions for that if you're just making up stuff like right. satellites from Italy interfering with voting machines in the United States and counting you know, uh, Trump votes for Biden, uh, go ahead and do that. I mean, I think that's a good thing because it'll be shown uh, over and over again. There's no fraud. You had your chance. You went to the judiciary and these are judges appointed both by by Trump and others. And you keep losing. They lost 65 cases after uh, uh, the election in, in November of, of 2020. So and uh, they even knew their own handpicked uh, vetters like in Arizona couldn't come up with a single uh, vote that should have been cast for uh, Trump and Biden. So let's trust the process. That's what we have to do. And I'm sorry that we're out of time. That was the voice of Bruce Fine. He's former associate deputy attorney general of the U.S. and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have another hour coming up. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Today is Election Day, finally. And things look good for Republicans, despite last-minute campaigning in key states by President Biden, First Lady Jill Biden, Vice President Harris, former President Obama, and even former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. All eyes are on the key states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, New Hampshire, Nevada, and Arizona. The conventional wisdom is that the House of Representatives will go easily to the Republicans today. They need to win only three seats to take control, and modeling suggests that they'll win at least 20 seats. 
We'll likely have a good idea which party will control the Senate once we get the returns from Pennsylvania and New Hampshire, but that could even take a week or two or three or four. If John Fetterman loses in Pennsylvania and Senator Maggie Hassan loses in New Hampshire, it will be virtually impossible for the Democrats to maintain control of the chamber. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is expected to announce his presidential candidacy imminently. Now we we hear it's going to be a week from today. And he's apparently already feeling heat from Ron DeSantis, whom Trump has now nicknamed Ron DeSanctimonious. Trump is apparently nervous about the $200 million that DeSantis has already raised for a presidential race, as well as the announcement yesterday by Republican billionaire megadonor, megadonor Keith, uh, sorry, Ken Griffin that he will throw his support to DeSantis. He supported Trump last time. Griffin has already donated $60 million to Republican candidates just this year. And in other news, a purported whistleblower has told Senate investigators that Joe Biden participated in a conference call in 2012 with Hunter Biden, Key Reid, the son of the late Senator Harry Reid, and family friend Jeff Cooper about an online gambling company that the three had set up with permission from the governments of Mexico, Ecuador, and Peru. And Peru. None of that is illegal, of course. But withholding the information from your ethics filings is illegal. We'll see how this plays out. Republicans have promised robust investigations into the Bidens if and when they win control of the House. We're joined by journalist and author Daniel Lazar. He is going to give us some insights into these issues. Welcome back, Dan. Uh, Thanks for having me, John. Dan, I want to begin with some prognostication. Broad prognostication. Everybody is predicting a Republican takeover of the House. On the Senate side, things are a lot tighter, with projections ranging from a Democratic pickup of one seat to a Republican pickup of four seats. Give me your thoughts on broad trends that you expect to see tonight. Jeez. (laughs) I mean, I I expect to see a a strong Republican uh, trend emerging. I expect the uh, Republicans to pick up, uh, to take control of both houses. Um, but, you know, but am I confident in that prediction? I'm not. I think a polls can be misleading. Uh, Democrats, you know, may vote in greater numbers than people expect. Uh, I just, you know, we'll find out in 24 hours. We'll have a very good idea of where things are going. We will. So that's uh, that's all I can say. But I but all signs do point to a GOP win. Yeah, I, I would agree. I want to focus with you on some of these really close races. The final polls yesterday show, and this is heartbreaking for me, show Herschel Walker defeating Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Mehmet Oz defeating Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, and Adam Laxalt defeating Senator Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. In a couple of sleeper races, Polls now show General Dan Baldock beating Senator Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire and Representative Lee Zeldin beating Governor Kathy Hochul in New York. These polls don't necessarily take into account early voting, which has been huge. Which way do you see these races going? Well, I think it'll be very close. I mean, I mean, Zeldin is, you know, has come from, you know, far behind. Yeah. He's closed the gap. He's he's coming on very strong. Uh, he's got a very strong message, and uh, and and Hochul doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hochul Hochul is you know represents the status quo, which everyone agrees is lousy. So you know, so uh, so the in a certain sense, you know, the 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 the, the politician of the status quo, um, of sort of just you know staying put, 
is at a severe disadvantage. Uh, and Hochul, by the way, is a, is a rather colorless ca- candidate. I'm not saying that Zeldin is the best, but she is notably weak in that regard. Doesn't seem to be a very good campaigner or debater. Um, and whereas he is, no, he's, he's very strong, very outspoken. Um, and crime is a problem, and the economy is a problem. A cr- crime is a problem. We feel it, fear it, uh, feel it here in New York. Uh, you know, it's it's gone it's gone up noticeably. The streets, the subways, uh, you know, um, uh, they're getting a, you know so they sort of make people nervous. They're getting a little strange, uh, and people don't like that. And and I can't blame people for not liking that, right? I mean, you can't blame people for for. Sure being dissatisfied with these trends and, and wanting something something to be done. Uh, I, I don't think that Zeldin will be able to do much, but I think that, you know, you can understand the the um, the popular dissatisfaction. Sure. I, I could see that. You know, it was funny. There was an op-ed in the uh, New York Times today um, endorsing Hochul for governor, saying that she has managed a steady ship, right? Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's one way of saying status quo. Yeah. And then, of course, the New York Post was jumping up and down about uh, about Zeldin, that it has to be Zeldin to save the the city. Uh, not not just the state, but the city is is out of control. Crime is out of control. There are, you know, multiple assaults on the subway now every day. People getting pushed in front of trains or stabbed on the subway platform for no reason. I agree with you. That's one to watch. There are a few other gubernatorial races that are very tight, but that aren't really getting a whole lot of play. The Democrats stand to lose big gubernatorial races in Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, and like we just said, possibly New York. Are there any bright spots, do you think, for Democrats in gubernatorial races this year? Not at the moment. (laughs) At the moment, things look extremely bleak. Um, uh, you know, I mean, if Zeldin pulls an upset in, uh, in, uh, in New York, if, uh, if Carly Lake pulls an upset in, uh, in, in Arizona, yeah. that's, those would be, those would be really, those would be really big setbacks, really big blows to the, um, to the, uh, the democratic party. Yeah. So, I mean, so I don't, I don't see any signs of light now, but, but tomorrow it could look very different. Uh, you know, but you know, if uh, Zeldin, you know, um, takes power in New York, that'll that will have a a a a real effect on abortion access, for example. Mm. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that you know that that New Yorkers would put up with this, given that you know New Yorkers New York is one of the the strongest you know uh, abortion rights uh, yeah. states in the country. In the country, but mm-hmm. um, but that will be the reality. That's what they. That's what New Yorkers will face. Um, you know, Carly Lake is a is a an excellent campaigner. She's uh she is uh, very good on the campaign trail. All those years of, of you know of uh, being a newscaster have really paid off. Yes. Um, and so the uh, so you know so we'll see what happens. But in Arizona, that'll have a big impact. Um, I I wonder. I'm sort of wondering if there isn't a basic sort of subterranean shift in American politics to the states, where suddenly. The states are emerging as battlegrounds. Gubernatorial contests are really important. Uh, the more the more gridlocked things become in Washington, the more the the gamesmanship uh, shifts to the, to the states. I think we've already seen that since the 1990s. I'm wondering if we won't see it uh, uh, see more of it in the uh, in the years to come, and whether these really hot gubernatorial races are part of the uh, part of that trend. 
that's a good point. And I think that, uh, that you might be onto something there. We may have seen a shift and we just haven't realized it yet. Um, I want to ask you too about Donald Trump. So Trump was apparently planning to announce his candidacy for president last night in Ohio. And there was a flurry of calls from the RNC and Mitch McConnell. Uh, and he was convinced to stand down. We should expect to see an announcement in the coming week, though, either Monday or Tuesday. Trump sees his biggest challenge in Ron DeSantis and has already bestowed on him, as I said, the nickname of Ron DeSanctimonious, which is actually kind of funny. Kind of funny. It's, it's, it's pretty it's creative. Pre- yeah, <laughs> it, It's better than what is it? Dangerous Dawn. Yeah. The and, Democratic effort. And low. Yeah. 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 Low energy Jeb. That was funny, too. That was pretty funny. These are good. Yeah. DeSantis has a ton of money. He believes in most of the things that Trump believes in, but he doesn't have Trump's baggage. Trump offered up a poll in Ohio this weekend, uh, the provenance of which we don't have any idea. Uh, But this poll allegedly shows Trump with 71 percent of support among Republicans versus 10 percent support for DeSantis. I will say there have been individual state polls and the two of them are practically tied in Michigan. And DeSantis is ahead of Trump in in New Hampshire. It's very, very early in this presidential race. But do you think Trump has reason to be worried at this early stage? I, I think I think it depends on what happens uh, uh, today. Um, if there's a big Republican sweep, that'll be seen as a victory for Trump. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and Trump will emerge out of it really stronger if if the if the voters surprise the pollsters and and, and the Democrats do better than uh, than expected, then I'll uh, then that will be seen as a sign of weakness uh, on Trump's part and inability. These, you know, his 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 um his costs outweigh his benefits and therefore uh, it'll provide an opening for someone like Ron the sanctimonious. Um, so uh, so so I, that's the way I see it. I mean, I mean, I think that, that Trump owns the Republican Party, but if the party does poorly uh, uh, today, then I think that ownership will be a little more tenuous. I think you're probably right. Uh, Arkansas Senator uh, Tom Cotton, one of my least favorite people, took himself out of the presidential race over the weekend. I actually laughed and I said to a friend of mine, I didn't realize he was considering running. He must have, like, his mom must have said, you know what, honey, you should run for president. I think that's where he probably got the idea from his mom. And he decided this this wasn't for him. But anyway, he took himself out of the out of the race. It's clear, though, that DeSantis, that former VP Mike Pence, former secretary of state and CIA director Mike Pompeo are all running. They've made it crystal clear. It's possible that Ted Cruz and uh, Cruz and a handful of others could run. Did you happen to see Ted Cruz was in the parade over the weekend for the Houston Astros having won the World Series and somebody threw a beer can at him and hit him? And, and the the guy was was arrested. And they said, when was the last time that somebody was booed in a World Series victory parade? Good job. Yeah. Good job, Ted Cruz. But anyway, at this early stage, the race looks, like I said, to be Trump versus DeSantis. Do you think that Trump has the wherewithal to hold off DeSantis with his huge war chest? On the issues, DeSantis is more substantive than Trump is. Do you think Republican voters care about that? And do you see any of these other Republicans as being serious challengers? 
I don't see Cruz as a serious challenger no. at all. No. I mean, I think Cruz, I think Cruz, Cruz's negatives are through the roof. People can't stand him, and with good reason. The guy is the oiliest politician I've seen in, in years, uh, and and he's he's just god awful. Um, but again, I think that it all depends on on what happens today. If 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 there's a big Republican win, that'll strengthen Trump. If there's a if the Republicans do poorly. Then suddenly it's a much more wide open ball game, um, and uh, and I think that that not only will will uh, will DeSantis step forward, but other Republican candidates may see an uh, an, an opportunity as well. So we'll just know more. But if if the Republicans uh, win big, then I think that'll be a vindication for Trump's leadership. Yeah, and uh, and that's how the Republicans will see it. And, and, you know, and, and, and remember, I mean, I mean, all those crazy things about Trump, that's why Republicans like him. Yeah. I mean, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, you know, they want a bull in the China shop. They have yeah. always wanted a bull in the China shop. And, and Trump is there is the perfect uh, choice for that role. If the Democrats get wiped out today, calls are going to increase for Joe Biden to not run for reelection in two years. No matter what happens today, many Democrats still don't want Joe Biden to run for re-election. And there's already talk about Pete Buttigieg, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar running instead. People always throw in Kamala Harris, but she would never run if Joe Biden were to run. Joe Biden is an older man. He sometimes appears confused. His approval ratings are decidedly underwater. Do you see him hanging on and running for re-election? And if he does, does a Democrat run against him like Ted Kennedy did against Jimmy Carter in 1980? I do not see. I do not see Joe Biden running for re-election. That, that, is, that is one forecast I feel relatively confident in making. He is not going to be a candidate in 2024. He is, he, his age is it, it's more than showing. It's glaring. The man is 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 feeble, infirm. His mind is you know is dulled by uh, by by age. Um, it is a, he would be a disaster in 2024, and every Democrat knows that. Yeah. Um, the trouble with the Democrats is they they don't have any they don't have any bench. Exactly. The, um, I've said the, that uh, a number of times. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean. Klobuchar was distinctly unexciting in 2020. I mean, I just, I just don't know who's out there uh, and who they could who they could draw upon. I, I totally agree that Kamala Harris is, you know, she, she shouldn't even like mention the word. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I don't know. I don't see any kind of star. You know, a Mario Cuomo could conceivably have been a star if he hadn't gotten himself in trouble. But no, but uh, but I just don't Andrew, see anybody right? uh, out there of that caliber. Um and I think that the uh, that 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 Biden is has got to get out of the way, or he'll be pushed out of the way. Someone will pull him aside. His wife will pull him aside. <laughs> Someone will pull his wife aside. Well, and then his yeah. wife will pull Joe aside. That's say, often how it works. Here's, here's the uh, here's here's the story. That's often how it works. Somebody will get to the first lady and say, "Look," and, and oftentimes it's somebody from inside the White House, like the chief of staff. Oh, my God, they're going to run Jill Biden for president. Oh, could you imagine? <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, if, they, if the Republicans do capture the House, uh, I think they will, they will settle, set about making uh, Joe Biden's life miserable. Absolutely uh, miserable. And, uh, and the, um, 
the, 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 the impeachment threat, the corruption allegations, this will essentially bring his presidency to a standstill. You know, I mean, the, the Democrats have done this to themselves. You yeah, know, I was thinking have. about the, the bench. Without a doubt. You know, you've got a bunch of ghouls clinging to power and influence. And then you have a party that treats, I was going to say, they sort of treat charisma as something to be to be beaten out of people. But it's more than just that. It's that, you know, what the the members of the party or party adjacent people who have become genuinely and organically pretty popular in, in recent years have been because they're talking about things that people actually want that fall in the purview of left politics. Mm-hmm. But the party has no intention of doing anything like that. That's and right. that's why you have to, you know, you can't let a Bernie Sanders go anywhere. You can't let an AOC go anywhere. You can't let any of the, these, you know, people who, who, you know, you can love them or hate them. There's a lot of hay to be made making fun of AOC, sure. But also she has some positions that are genuinely popular Mm -hmm. and genuinely run against the grain of what the Democratic Party wants to do. And Mm -hmm. they have really they have set themselves up for this uh, for this extremely shallow bench, you know, because they they don't have anyone who can you know, they, they don't like charisma and you can't. You know, anyone who says anything that is genuinely uh, popular has to immediately stop saying that if you want to get your APAC funding and and the rest. But also also the Democrats have had they have behaved so disgracefully Mm -hmm. uh, since 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 they essentially imploded in 2016. I mean, the um, you know, I mean, mean, Russiagate was such a fiasco, but not only only Russiagate, but things like the, uh, like, you know, like the, um, the hysterical reaction to, uh, to, um, oh, help me out here, the Supreme Court justice with the starts, name starts with a K. Oh, Kavanaugh. I mean, 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 that was, that was so self-defeating. The, the, the absolute hysteria of that campaign, it it was a turnoff. I, I understand why it was done, but it was a confession of bankruptcy. And I, I mean, the, the, you know, that, you know, things like the Me Too campaign, which is now backfiring, things like, like, like BLM, Black Lives Matter. I mean, Democrats, you know, were, were making nice sounds about to fund the police in, in the year 2020. Right. But now they're, now they're, they're all of them, every last one of them is running in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's but all about law and order. And so you've turned off anyone who believed in you and you've left all of that sort of power and the headlines and the hype to the people who were against it from the very beginning. It's like the worst possible situation. Sorry to interrupt you, Dan. Yeah. But you also but you also wind up discrediting yourself. Yes. I mean, by 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 uh, by, you know, by by backpedaling, it just shows that you really just don't believe in anything. Yeah. And uh, and and as a consequence, you know, voters don't have any respect for for Democrats. Yes. Now that. That's the way things stand now. These things oscillate back and forth over the long, you know, over the, the long term. But nonetheless, that's that's the situation Democrats are in. It seems that everything is working against them. The economy, crime and the war, too, by the way. Yes, I, I have next what I think is an easy question for you, Dan. I've been astounded at the money that has been poured into these midterm elections. OpenSecrets.org is reporting that $16.7 billion has been spent in state and federal races this year. There has to be a better way to manage our elections, but nobody seems to care. And mega donors, most of whom are Republicans, have put in a billion dollars of their own money this year. Is anybody out there taking campaign finance seriously? Is there any pending legislation or have we passed beyond the point of no return. 
I think it's the it's, it's the uh, the last. The latter. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think I have, I have people. I mean, first of all, the whole electoral system is just it's it's just you know is crying out for reform. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a sprawling mess. You know, standards vary from state to state and even community to to, to community. Uh, you know, there aren't there aren't dozens of candidates running this year. There are thousands of candidates running, and you know, and the American federal system results in this incredible you know sprawling electoral system, which is uh, just it's just completely out of control, and it's it's perfect for these kinds of mega donors because they can they can have a a huge impact. And by the way. By the way, it's in the states where this has really been dramatic as well. Yes. I mean, the, 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 the Republican long, long march through the state legislatures, which began around 2010, has has resulted in something close to a revolution in this country. I mean, I, a fundamental shift in the, you know, in the in the balance of power and in the centers of power. So people should be talking about it, but they're not talking about it because they've given up. I mean, the, the, the Americans, are, Americans are deeply pessimistic. They, they have lost faith in the ability of the, of the political structure to reform itself, to get itself under control, uh, to take charge of where it's going. Uh, their, their, their mood is really quite bleak. Dan, uh, Republicans already have filed a lawsuit in Pennsylvania to block the counting of thousands of ballots that were either unsigned or not properly dated. We asked our last guest about this, too. Presumably, these would be Democratic ballots because they come from decidedly Democratic precincts. Um, Democrats have filed a countersuit and are urging voters whose ballots have been pulled to go to the election office and vote again. Uh, This is just the first of what I think will likely be lots and lots of lawsuits, right? Shouldn't we expect to see a lot more of this in the coming weeks? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe even in the coming days. Right. I mean, we'll see, we'll see what happens, you know, these, uh, as these, uh, these results come in. But uh, yeah, there's a, the, the system is wide open for these kinds of controversies. And I think that they, uh, that's what we'll say. I mean, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Things may, may, uh, may roll out really smoothly. I remember I was predicting disaster in 2020. And in that regard, the 2020 elections were actually fairly smooth. So uh, so I was wrong then. Uh, so we'll see what happens now. But the system is just it's just so sprawling and hyper complex and uncontrolled and and in desperate need of reform, but unlikely in the extreme to get the uh, get reform. Yeah, I have to agree. Finally, Dan, there's a controversy taking place at MSNBC after the firing of weekend news anchor Tiffany Cross. Cross was accused of making crude and sometimes racist comments on other shows, not on her own. Megyn Kelly called her, quote, the most racist person in all of television, unquote. And Tucker Carlson opened his show a few nights ago with a montage of some of the outrageous comments Cross has made. But MSNBC is being accused of racism for firing her in the first place, with supporters saying that there aren't enough black and female pundits and that she's being discriminated against. Is this a tempest in a teapot, Dan, or is there a bigger, more important issue at play here? And does this firing pose any danger to MSNBC? Well, certainly it poses a danger to MSNBC. 
Uh, but yes, there is much more. This involves much more than simply one talk show host. I mean, I really think that that the, Dem- you know, the Democratic Party is sort of less a party than a milieu or a culture or I don't know what. But but this culture is self-destructing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I listened to, to, to Carlson's uh, show. You know, I saw the the um, the the I saw the clips. You know, it's and and the stuff that 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 she engages in is really kind of lowbrow, crude, and kind of offensive. I mean, Democrats can't win elections if they race bait. What yeah. is what? Uh, yeah. What is still sixty-five uh, percent uh, of the population, and it's and it's not only. And, and, I, and I don't mean to engage in this kind of crude political calculus. I don't say like, you know, we got to be nicer to, to, to white folks because they're they, they control a lot of votes. I'm saying it completely undermines the the noble cause of anti-racism. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be. And this is what you know. This is what 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 made me a socialist fifty years ago. I mean, I mean, you you. The, these it, it isn't white people who are responsible for these things. White people are not a homogeneous force. White people include everyone from billionaires to impoverished people in the in the Rust Belt. And to speak blithely of white people doing this and white people doing that in the way that uh, that Tiffany Cross does is explosive. Um, you know, and and we see it all over, and it's 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 politically. It's not true. It's incorrect. It's very poor political analysis. Um, and, and people, it, it also is deeply offensive to millions of people who are having a hard time, who can and should be rallied to the cause of democracy, but instead are being you know, taunted and abused and blamed, you know, for things of, of you know the, over which they have zero control. I want to ask you in just the last couple of minutes that we have about uh, these reports that Joe Biden was on a conference call with Hunter and Key Reed and this guy Cooper, uh, Jeff Cooper, talking about an online gambling company that was being set up uh, to to and uh, to allow for gambling in in South America. Okay, no big deal. Uh, Perfectly legal. They got permission from these governments. But the accusation, the allegation that's now being made against Joe Biden is that if he were a part of this deal while he was still vice president, he should have included it in his ethics disclosures. And there's nothing in his ethics disclosures. We also don't know exactly when this call took place. Was it after the 2000? Uh, well, I guess it doesn't matter if it was after the 2012 election now that I'm thinking about it. Anyway, the allegation from somebody who 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 purports to have been on the call um, has spoken with Senate investigators saying that it sounded like Joe Biden was a part of the deal. It sounded like Joe Biden was was asking questions like he was a member of the board of directors. Is this anything? It's only being carried in the right-wing press. Breitbart has been running with it and Newsmax. But the reason I bring it up is that this this witness who's calling himself a whistleblower 
um, has reported it to Senate investigators. Is this an issue for concern? Oh, yeah, it's a very big issue. I mean, the, the, the Democratic Party press, which is which is virtually the entire mass media, except for for uh, the Rupert Murdoch uh, owned properties, I mean, has has tried to suppress the story. We all remember what happened in uh, in October 2020 <laughs> over uh, over the um, uh, over Hunter Biden's uh, laptops. Right. And uh, and, you know, that was that was an absolutely amazing incident. You know, 50, 50 ex-national uh, security yeah. officials signed a, 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 an op- a, a full-page ad saying sure this did. is obviously a, a Russian intelligence operation. Yep. I mean, it was incredible. And, 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 and yes, those, those laptops had, are, are jam-packed with all kinds of fascinating and, from a Democratic point of view, dangerous material. Now, remember, Joe Biden is the guy who said he never discussed or has discussed his son's business activities. Right. Now, now, in addition to this, yeah, in addition to these these latest re- this latest report, I mean, there have been other reports that on at least fourteen occasions, he you know he took part in meetings, you know, or or or, or phone calls with his son's business partners. Now, this is very big stuff. I mean, there is there is a lot here to keep a a a a, a congressional investigative committee very busy for a long time, and so, <laughs> so this is one of the reasons why I think Biden is just like you know is just going to go up against a buzzsaw, uh, assuming the Republicans take control of the House. Okay, we're going to leave it there. That was the voice of Daniel Lazar. He is an author and journalist. Where can where can people follow your work, Dan? Well, I'm writing these days for a uh, for a, a British socialist newspaper called The Weekly Worker. So theweeklyworker.co.uk. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take another break and come back. Stay tuned. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking now about more turmoil at Twitter because it just doesn't stop. We're talking about layoffs at Meta and a couple of scandals over ByteDance and how is it regulating its flagship app TikTok in China versus in the United States and who are they tracking and why. Getting into all of these questions with us is technologist, privacy expert, and co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast, Chris Garafa. Hi, Chris. Let's start at Twitter. Elon Musk. Elon Musk had already been a caricature of an obnoxious rich kid, but he just catapulted past parody over the weekend when, as a result of the blue check fiasco, where you recall last week he said he was going to make people pay $20 for the check, then it dropped down to $8, and a bunch of people were like, this isn't about, you know, blue checks being better than people. This is about identity verification. And so a bunch of people on Twitter decided to impersonate Elon Musk online, right? And not with the 
real intention of making people think for any length of time that it was Elon Musk actually saying the things that they were tweeting. You could just look at their handle names and know you are looking at jokes. Um, Elon Musk first responded by coming out and saying, if you're a parody account, you have to say parody account in your name. But it seems like he uh, brought the hammer down on some pretty big accounts anyway. Uh, Twitter's new head of safety and integrity said yesterday that accounts who use impersonation as a tactic have always stood to get the boot. So I don't know. I'd, I mean, I'd like to know the timeline of, of when some of these accounts got taken down because there are a lot of accusations. People saying, I said, it says it's parody in my account, but I can't parody Elon Musk, it seems like. Um, and then this using impersonation as a tactic, I don't know. There seems to be a pretty thin line between everybody having a good idea all at once or the site's users bullying the billionaire who bought the site. What's going on, Chris? And how long is it going to last? Yeah, it's so wild right now to be watching what's going on on Twitter because it's changing really hour by hour still. I mean, it's it's exhausting in a way. And, you know, I think we'll talk about the numbers later on. But, you know, yeah, so a number a lot of people have been uh, have had their accounts suspended or just shut down for putting Elon Musk as their display name yeah. uh, or even saying Elon Musk parody um, some great comedians, cartoonists, activists, others, uh, you know, have done that. And so, yeah, I mean, Musk said, OK, it's you know, you can't do that. It has to clearly say parody. So, for example, after that, uh, cartoonist Jeff Jock, uh, who does some great work, went and put, you know, Elon Musk parody as his display name and he was shut down. Yeah. Uh, his account <laughs> was suspended. Um, there have been, you know, a number of other instances like that where people are very clearly saying I'm a parody. But just because they're using the name Elon Musk and a picture of uh, of Musk, um, even though, like you said earlier, they're not changing their Twitter handle, like the at part of the name. They're just. Yeah changing the name that shows up next to it, uh, they're still being being suspended. You know, Musk famously said Twitter was going to be a place for free speech. He said, you know, comedy is returning to Twitter. And yet uh, when he is the butt of the joke, then uh, he can't really take it. So I guess he can dish it, but but not really take it. Um, I mean, I think a lot of this, per, you know, for him is just ego, right? Why else do you buy, a, you know, <laughs> so Twitter for $44 billion yeah. uh, and then, you know, get so involved? I mean, he's trolling it basically to his own company day in and day out. If you look at his timeline, yeah. but he's also, you know, really been impacting uh, the, the discourse so to say. Um, and it's actually scary that he's doing it so close to and on Election Day. I mean, yesterday he basically tweeted out, go vote Republican. Uh, we mm -hmm. need a counterbalance right. to Biden in the White House. He has, you know, tweeted out, um, you know, conspiracy theories and all of these other things. I mean, I think, you know, Musk really, this is, of course, about money for him. But part of the, the money for him is also the, um, you know, public opinion and his own opinion of himself. Well, yeah, and this is kind of the question, because, of course, since this began, there were warnings that, you know, if Twitter becomes just a more of a cesspool, advertisers are, are going to pull out. And there have been a lot of stories about advertisers uh, suspending their Twitter buys. I don't know how many were confirmed and how many are, you know, insiders whispering. But along with that are, uh, you know, is this report, at least from Twitter itself, that user growth is continuing. And so I wonder, you know, it doesn't seem like these can be parallel tracks. And so I wonder which you think is going to break first, 
Are we going to like our advertiser is going to just sort of wait for this to blow over and then, of course, go back because it's worth their money to advertise on Twitter, whether or not it's just a whole bunch of sock puppets yelling at each other? I mean, I, you know, I, I fully believe the story that's being told about how the the daily monetizable active users is going up because everyone wants to see the car crash. Yeah, everyone yeah. wants to see, you know, what a wreck and an absolute disaster Twitter looks like right now. And, and, you know, to make their own jokes and to be part of it. I think that's super and super natural. Right. Like people want to see all of those things. I haven't seen a change uh, in the advertising I'm getting on Twitter, and, you know, I certainly make up <laughs> one of those users um, very actively, but I'm seeing a change in who's advertising to me. It's a lot of smaller companies, it seems, and this is just my experience kind of thinking back over the, you know, the last month and then, you know, through the last few days and last week, but I'm seeing smaller companies that I hadn't necessarily seen, um, just, you know, not at the li large scale of like an, you know, an IBM or, or another company that would be targeting me for ads. Um, there are, you know, discussions is, as far as we know, at many of the big advertising firms, uh, places like Omnicom and others, you know, these holding companies that own a bunch of other advertising firms about whether or not it's a good idea for their clients to continue to advertise on Twitter. And while there are some companies who have backed off, it really seems like the general idea right now is to let the current ad buys run and play it by ear. That's kind of the gist I've been getting from talking to people in the industry uh, and also just you know seeing what is happening on Twitter. No one is immediately, or very few uh, large companies are immediately pulling their ad buys or canceling their current ads. But I think like many of us, they are waiting as well to see what happens, because we just had reporting last night that Musk is considering or possibly considering putting all of Twitter behind a paywall yeah. so that you would have to actually pay to be a member of Twitter uh, and to use the site at all. And that completely changes the dynamic when it comes to you know advertising and even whether or not they need advertisers. It also changes uh, the, the dynamic of how many active users are you going to have? Because you know, how many people are actually going to pay? whether it's $8 or $20 a month uh, to, to get on to Twitter, especially in the, the shape that it's in now. So there's a lot of questions that are still open, particularly for advertisers. I think they're going to see past the idea that, you know, and the, the fact that, yes, there are more users on Twitter over this past week because of exactly what's behind that. And like I said before, it's people just wanting to see this go down in flames, really, and be part of it. Yeah, I honestly can't get my head around what I think would happen if it if Twitter became like a if it if the entire thing was put behind a paywall would it just be entire you know like it, it's just news agencies springing for subscriptions for their you know it's like because for for people in media it's it's kind of the it's like a wire service but one that you have to you know triple check but it's convenient <laughs> in that way I just can't I, I I don't know like then on one hand maybe makes it uh, as navigable as it is now, right? Which is to say not infinitely worse if nobody's verified and you, you know, have to do all kinds of triangulation to try and figure out if you're getting something from a source that you can kind of rely on or is at least, you know, going to be willing to stand behind what they say. Um, but then does that just 
I don't know. It just it, it's just you get to watch that bubble from afar. I guess I don't know. So much so much of politics seems to be responsive to Twitter in some degree or another. And I wonder I wonder how that would change if it would just go away or go away from me. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I'm trying to see outside well, my own experience here. I mean, if if they lost a significant number of, of users, then there would be no reason for media to be watching Twitter so much, right? Yeah. To have those accounts of their own to say we got to get the latest scoop, uh, you know, from Twitter, even if you have to verify it three times somewhere else, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so you know, if they started charging eight dollars, twenty dollars, whatever it is, a month, a week, however Musk decides to do it tomorrow and then changes the day after. This is, you know, it's not going to be a sustainable thing the way Twitter exists now. I think putting it behind a paywall is would be an awful idea, uh, I mean, financially, but also just in general in the way that we have come to rely on social media. Yeah, it's just then you create, it's a bunch of people in a gated community yelling at each other inst- instead of like the, in the commons yelling at each other, which isn't, a, a you know, a true difference. Um I also want to ask you, Chris, about some of these stories about ByteDance that we have seen in recent weeks. Uh, A couple weeks back, Forbes had a big story about how ByteDance, which is the parent company of TikTok, was planning to use location information collected by the app to surveil specific American users. Then more recently... 60 Minutes did a story pointing out that the version of TikTok used in China is different from the one used in the United States. Uh, The Chinese version has certain controls and uh, limits that the exported one does not. And I wonder what you think people should understand. If you can sort of tell us tell us what these two stories were and what people should understand about them. Well, I want to start with with the second one, uh, you know, because the tweet from uh, CBS about this and obviously it it, uh, came out on CBS 60 Minutes on Sunday night. And the tweet and the quote that they use here, they say it's almost like Chinese company ByteDance recognizes that technologies influencing kids development and they make their domestic version a spinach tiktok while they ship the opium version to the rest of the world and that's from tristan harris hmm. now if anyone has seen uh the social dilemma on netflix then you're somewhat familiar with harris he used to work at google uh, and he now runs the center for humane technology but you know i don't know how he intended it but i'm sorry that opium reference in regards to you know, related to a Chinese company, absolutely no doubt racist. Yeah. Right? Just to say that they're shipping opium to the rest of the world. But the thing is, China actually has regulations. They have laws about social media and the and they recognize the dangers on children, which is exactly what Harris is talking about. So it's it's really bizarre to me that he's sitting there saying, you know, in literally a documentary a couple of years ago, you know, social media is bad for our kids. It's bad for our health. And then he turns around and makes this insult to, uh, you know, about the way that ByteDance runs TikTok and its versions, you know, in, in China under the laws of the Chinese government, which if you're running a company, if you're running a service and you're in a, co- a certain country, you have to follow the laws of that country. And so that's exactly what ByteDance is doing. Now, I'm not absolving that company or TikTok of, of anything, really, um, because, you know, that app does have a lot of problems, especially the U.S. version. Um, it does a lot of tracking. It does suck our attention in. But the way this is being covered really just, to me, points out the, ne- the necessity of 
recognizing that you know the U.S. government is in this this new cold war against China. It's an information war. It's a tech war, and that's what I, I have to think about every time we see this kind of, of coverage. Uh, but Chris, you know, it, it's not like the U.S., the entire U.S. economy rests upon the export of products that we would never want to see uh, used, you know, or with unfettered access in, in American streets. So I feel like we're not being hypocritical here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it is just sort of it's always it's it's always the pot calling the kettle black. And, hey, there's a solution for this. You know, if these are the kinds of things you want. Uh, you want your children to be protected from. Don't expect that protection to come from the companies that are making money off this exploitation. Uh, have that protection enacted by the government that is supposed to be you know, serving the interests of the people. Yeah, that's exactly it. If we are rightly concerned about the, inf- the, you know, the way that let's just talk about, you know, kids and teenagers, the way that we know these apps influence the mental health of teenagers uh, in a negative way, then let's do something about that. Let's not insult the country that's actually doing something about it. Let's do something about that ourselves. Let's learn from them what has worked, what hasn't worked, what could we adapt here, and and maybe what is going to be, you know, different for, you know, cultural reasons or economic or whatever it is. That's what we need to do. We should be learning here, not not insulting with these racist, you know, tropes. What about this tracking story, which is a couple weeks back? Forbes dropped it. They said they had gotten their hands on these internal documents. Uh, TikTok came out basically and said, uh, you know, if you want to talk about intrusive tracking, I suggest you turn the mirror on, uh, the you know, a, a bunch of domestic apps. What, what was this flap about? So what it looks like is that TikTok, in fact, did have the ability to turn up or down a certain level of uh, of tracking, right, of of location tracking for groups of, of users. Um, what they said was that it was, uh, you know, about what did what they say? It was about uh, relevant, showing relevant content and ads with users, also complying with laws uh, and detecting and preventing fraud and inauthentic behavior. Look, it's not entirely clear, right, what exactly they were doing. And that's why I said earlier, you know, I'm not all about, you know, love for TikTok as a privacy-based platform. It right. certainly, you know, is not. But uh, let's, you know, not forget that companies like Uber ha- once had uh, what's called, they called it the God view where yes. you could look at every single ride that was happening. You could look up a person's count and see exactly where they were. Facebook tracks all of that. I mean, this is, you know, again, it's pointing at TikTok for all of the things that American companies have been doing for well over a decade um, and have not learned from and have not made amends for in any real concrete way that actually helps the people that they have victimized. Finally, I want to ask you about these layoffs that are rumored to be coming at Meta that could be uh, bigger than the layoffs we saw at Twitter, which are also seem like they're trying to do some callbacksies, you know, some like, whoopsie, can I get a mulligan on laying you off? We did it accidentally at Twitter, which is also just nuts. Um, but yeah, big layoffs apparently coming at Meta. And I wonder, you know, not to sort of force you to be an economist, Chris, but something I'm sort of curious about is whether... This is a sign of things to come for the larger economy or if something is going on specifically in the tech sphere because maybe I'm wrong. I, I didn't I wouldn't necessarily have have put tech as like the canary in the coal mine for a recession, but maybe I should. What, what do you think? You know, what what is happening at Meta and how much 
you know, how much is this chaos at Meta? How much is this chaos in the tech sphere? How much of this is just something that's coming for the rest of us in a couple months? Well, I'll defer to somebody like uh, Richard Wolf on the general economic, you know, question here. Uh, that's certainly not my forte, but you know, we are seeing across the board in large tech companies either these layoffs or hiring freezes. Um, Apple, Google, and uh, many other big tech companies have been freezing their hiring. It started out it's with some of them at just saying um, we're going to freeze the, uh, you know, freeze hiring except at certain levels. Um, some of them are saying we're not going to hire at all, right? They were only going to hire senior or staff level engineers, and now some of them are not hiring at all. So Facebook is being impacted, Twitter being impacted, uh, a number of other tech companies, um, like I said, as well, either again with layoffs or hiring freezes. And along the hiring freeze generally comes a salary freeze. So that's going to impact workers as well. Look, thousands of Twitter workers let go. Um, and in terms of those callbacks, yes, workers have been getting callbacks. And what we learned anecdotally is that really the the majority of the people saying yes are those who have to based on uh, visa status. They need to have a job and a sponsor for their work visa. And so they're coming back under these awful conditions at Twitter because they need to work to stay in the country, which is just it's a criminal right. condition. Um I think it is going to affect everyone. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of people just at these large companies, Meta, Facebook, you know, and, and, and others. And that will ripple through the economy because if you get laid off and you've been paying a, you know, overpriced rent and you can't pay that rent, then what happens? You Do you lose your apartment? Do you, uh, does your landlord suffer? You know, yeah. if it's a small landlord and not some big, you know, big management company. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of effects that can and will happen from these layoffs, particularly in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, but across the, across the country as, you know, more and more tech folks have been working from home and have been working from really anywhere uh, that they wanted to move to, to during the pandemic. Are there, can you refresh us on what the data security implications might be? Because that was a lot of the conversation I feel like at Twitter, right? Where if you don't have enough people to, and I don't understand how any of this works, but, you know, if you don't have enough people to staff the ship, that it can become leaky very quickly or vulnerable very quickly. And I wonder if, um, you know, that it still seems to be a possibility at Twitter and if the same possibility would exist for Meta. I, I think Meta it may not be the same situation, right? It, it, and I, so I don't I, I don't think Meta is going to be the same situation. They have a vested interest in keeping their platform going in one way or another. I think Twitter is, is extremely different with the chaos under Musk. Um, I, I think you know, what we saw was that entire teams, safety teams, content teams, policy, um, eth you know, ethical AI teams were, were laid off. There are stories that many people inside Twitter right now are just kind of sitting at their desks because they don't know who their team is. They don't know who they report to. They don't know how to get access to the new services that they're supposed to be uh, monitoring or fixing or working on. So uh, there's a real chance that, you know, Twitter could suffer either, you know, some sort of massive breach or just an outage downtime that is difficult to recover from because there's no internal cohesiveness as a result of these, you know, seemingly random layoffs. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we will probably be talking to you about more Twitter drama oh, next week. Definitely. I have no idea I'm when it's going right to I'm on Twitter right now. End. It's as bad as Chris says. Yeah. 
And it's only going to get worse. Yeah. And, and Elon Musk, I'm sorry, the guy's a fascist. He's just banning everybody whose jokes he doesn't like. It's just so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing to say, I'm for free speech. Yeah. Comedy is back. Right. And then ban a bunch of accounts that made fun of you, even when they were following the rules for making well, fun of you. One like, of the that's things, so transparently it, sad. The Onion today uh, published a, a photo of Elon Musk with the headline, um, Please like me. No, bullied loner plans uh, office shooting. Oh, right? oh no. God. He didn't he didn't ban the onion, yeah. but he blocked the onion. Yeah. And then they they uh, posted a photo of the uh, or screenshot of, you know, honestly, you it's are like not allowed to see he, Elon Musk's. He tweets. really thought that that. The only reason he didn't get more uh, praise and support on Twitter was because of bots or shadow bans and that, that, you know, once he bought it, it was going to be just like basking in sunshine all day long. He's just not very liked. Boy. All right. Chris Garafa, we got to let you go. What are you working on over at the Covert Action Bulletin (laughs) podcast this week? Oh, we've got an amazing episode coming out on Wednesday morning, 9 a.m., the U.S. information war against China. We had about an hour-long chat with Carl Zah. Um, really recommend people check it out. Oh, that's so Excellent. fun. I, we've, we've talked to Carl Zah a couple of times on this show, but the time difference is too difficult to book him very often. So that sounds like a great chat. All right, Chris, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. John, before we go, listen, yeah. National Park Service needs you to know something. Uh Uh-oh. They've got some advice for you. It's advice. It's a request. It is urgent. Please stop licking those toads. I saw that. Well, I expect you to follow through, John. I didn't know we had the psychedelic poison toads in the United States. I Uh, thought they were all in Central America. I thought they they had them in Texas. Oh, yeah? And I guess they do. They're the Colorado River toad. Wait. See, I wouldn't know which toad to lick. Um, well, they, the National Park Service is warning people to stop licking toads in the wild. Uh, they Why? are saying, well, because the, it's specifically the Sonoran Desert Toad, known as the Colorado River Toad. Uh, they say it's not harmless. Uh, this toad apparently does have that toxin. Yeah. That can, Isn't that it, the whole point, though? Yeah, but it also, I guess, can make you sick. Okay. It can make you sick if you get it in your mouth. They say, as with most things you come across in a national park, whether it be a banana slug, unfamiliar mushroom, or large toad with glowing eyes in the dead of the night, please refrain from licking. Yeah. Yeah. So it Ugh. can make you it can make you trip, but it can also make you pretty sick. Did you happen to see the breaking news just coming out of oh gosh, uh, the, no. from the LA Times? What is it? That one single Winning ticket was sold last night. Oh, the Powerball. $2 billion. The ticket was sold in LA. Oh my God. So my 20 bucks went right down the drain. Yeah, I I saw some, there was something going around like arguing that statistically it does make good sense. They were like, here's how much rationally you should spend on Powerball ticket. And I glanced at it and thought, "Uh, should I buy it? I don't know. You know, I have one, I have one scratch off more than once. I want to scratch off for 25 bucks once. Yeah, I would like $4 and then $12. I was a kid. I used the 25 to join the YMCA. Much more money than I Mm -hmm. thought to Mm because I didn't understand how the system worked and I bet more than I intended to. Yeah. (laughs) I've never, gambling is not, not it doesn't appeal to me. This is the first uh, lottery ticket I've bought in probably 10 years. Yeah. Did you see this story also about uh, a fire? That burned down a man's house in Northern yeah. California might have been started by a meteor. A meteor. Did you see the 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 still shot of it? It looks like there's this glowing 
basketball. I'm looking for it now. Um, with a little bit of a tail on it. <laughs> and it's headed right for his house. That's and per- apparently it, it burned it to the ground. You know, I heard a story the other day about a woman who was, she was sl- asleep on the couch when a meteor crashed through the roof of her house and hit, she didn't die. It like crashed through the roof of her house and hit her, but in some way that didn't kill her. And you know, uh, I think she gave it, I think she might have donated it to a museum or something, which I thought, I absolutely know. If a no, meteor falls through no. my house, I'm keeping that. No, no, no. Forever. Send it to Sotheby's. It's probably worth well, 10 times Well, or I'm selling house. it. Yes. Yeah. Or I'm selling it. I am definitely not you know, giving it away. Well, time, who am I? Indiana I, Jones? One time in, in 1989, I was driving down 95 to go visit some friends of mine. Mm-hmm. It was nighttime. And this green, like bright, brilliant green meteor just goes streaking across the sky. And I said to my wife at the time, I said, my God, that has to be a meteor. I've never seen one before. Mm -hmm. The next day in the post, they said it was a meteor and you could see it from New Jersey to Kentucky and that it had landed somewhere in Kentucky. So cool. So cool. Never forget it. Yeah. Seen shooting stars before. Sure. Never a meteor. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there. We're yeah. going to come back with well, midterm results tomorrow. Some of them anyway. Probably not a few enough to get some sense of what's going on, I hope. I but hope. we'll get into that then. Thanks it's to everybody. Be a late night. It will be for some of us. <laughs> Thanks to everybody who joined us. Thanks to all our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>